We're going to talk about people crying in worship uh, today. I'm not kidding. We are uh, in a very positive way, uh, in a good way. So... Um, Let's let's get an early jump on that. So um, we're going to look today at Ezra chapter three verses eight through thirteen. It is a picture of a worship service at the dedication of and the laying of the foundation for the new temple that uh, God's people, the returning exiles from uh, Persia, returning back to Jerusalem. This is um, uh, what they're doing, and so it's <clears throat> uh, it's a great uh, a, a great passage this morning. So before I, before I read it, let me pray. And we'll jump in on it this morning. Lord, we we come to you today and uh, we rejoice in your goodness and your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that we would never take your faithfulness for granted. I pray, too, that uh, we would, um, well, we'd be careful to entrust ourselves more and more uh, to your good hands. Lord, I I pray that you would teach us today, especially those of us who are struggling or we've quit struggling with temptation, that sin only diminishes and kills, uh, but you give life. So would you help us with that today? We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through uh, 13. Uh, remember last week we looked and saw the people have returned to Jerusalem. They had the uh, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles there. Uh, and this text is going to open uh, about, uh, well, uh, Almost a year and a half later. So uh, Ezra 3, verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem uh, from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel." And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So you may be thinking this morning, you know, what in the world does laying the uh, foundation stone of the new temple in Jerusalem have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you. It has a lot to do with what we uh, what we do here this morning. Uh, and so what I want to do this morning, we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at kind of the reenactment that's going on uh, and this building of the second temple that mirrors the, the rebuilding of the first temple. Uh, and then we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about why people are crying in the service. Why, why are they weeping, right? 
So we're going to we're going to look at we're going to look at both uh, both of those things uh, this morning. So uh, the first thing to note is, uh, AJ, you can put my notes up there. Uh, why is it important that this text begins with in the second year uh, in the second month? Well, uh, part of the reason why it, it opens this way is because. Back, you know, many, many, many years before when Solomon had built the, the first temple, when did he do it? Well, it says in 1 Kings 6, 1, in the 400 years and 80, 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So here the people of God are. You know, the, the, uh, uh, this has been their, their backs some 70 years after the temple had been destroyed, after they'd been carried off into exile. This group of 42,000 people has come back from Persia and is trying to reestablish the temple, reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And so they're doing it. They're mirroring what Solomon had done. Solomon began in the second month. They're beginning in the second month. So it's a, uh, uh, it's kind of in many ways, it's a reenactment of what had happened uh, so many years before. We read in Ezra 3, 7, it says, They gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of uh, of Persia. So that's exactly what Solomon did. Remember, Solomon uh, sent money to Tyre and Sidon to get the rocks and the cedars from Lebanon to bring and to build the original temple. So, so they're, they're, they're reenacting in many ways what had, what had gone uh, on before. And they're remembering as they're doing this, as they say in their worship service, they're remembering that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, let's take a minute here and think a little bit about reenactors. Now, many of you, uh, hear that word reenactor and it conjures an image in your mind that is uh, funny, right? Right? Um, and so we kind of think reenacting, you know, that's that's a bad thing. You know, we we don't we don't really we don't really like that. Although I do remember many years ago being in Colonial Williamsburg and running into a guy on on the Duke of Gloucester Street who was a reenactor. You know, he had the three corner hat on and the outfit, uh, and I know this guy. <laughs> he's he's a friend of mine, and I'm uh, he was uh, an elder in one of our churches in uh, in Williamsburg, and I and I go up to him to try to talk to him, like you know, hey Tom, how you doing? And he's not having any of it. <laughs> he's in character the whole time that he's talking to me, and like well, this is really weird, you know, like, and you know the kids are like. Daddy, why are you bothering that man? You know, so like, yeah, it was really awkward, really, really strange. I thought, well, he's really sold out, really into this reenacting business. Um, so, so the fact is, for for many of us, we think, you know, that old stuff that's really dumb. Uh, let's move on to, to, to what's new. And there's certainly a place, you know, the, the whole, the, the truth of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ in us is, you know, that the best is yet to come, right? And that's, that's what we lean into. That's what we, that's what we hope for. And that's, uh, that's, that, that's, that's the longing. That's the blessed hope of the church, right? 
that Jesus Christ will return one day and that his righteousness will cover the earth like the, like the waters cover uh, the sea, right? That, that is what we lean forward, lean into. But one of the things that we have to have that sustains us until that day comes is the memory of the record of the faithfulness of God to his people. And so it's an important thing that the the scriptures tell us over and over and over again to remember. You know, remember how God did this. Remember how he delivered you. Remember how he provided for you. Remember how he rescued you. Remember how he atoned for your sins. We we do that uh, because uh, sometimes what happens to us is, is that we get so caught up in the present, so undone by uh, the struggles that we're in now that it seems like God's not faithful. And it seems like the future redemption is so far future that it's out of touch and that we need a dose of encouragement, a dose of the work of God's spirit in us right now. And so how do you get that? You remember. And so when we come to the table of the Lord every week, right, one of the things we're doing is we're certainly experiencing the presence of Jesus to us. We're, we're certainly nourishing our souls. We are ha- having an opportunity to examine ourselves before God, to have the Spirit probe our hearts, to repent, to confess our sins. But we're also the key part of that. The central part of that is we remember the Lord's death until he comes. And by virtue of his death, I have righteousness. By virtue of his death, I have forgiveness. By righteous, by virtue of his death, I have his grace and his mercy, and I have his, this hope, right? And so we remember that. Uh, and, and we need to do this. He, he, we need to eat this little piece of bread and drink this little cup as tangible things to remind us in the midst of a broken and fallen world and in the midst of a broken and fallen life. That my sins are forgiven. That Jesus came and did for me what I could not and cannot do for myself. Right? And so this whole thing that's going on there where the, the people are gathered together and, and they are reenacting and re-remembering what it was that God had done is a pretty profound thing. It's important. But there's something else that's important for us to remember in the midst of this too is who is actually doing the building? Right. I mean, this is a lot of work. You know, they they've got to send off, you know, uh, miles away to get the trees cut down and the and the and the stones cut and all that stuff to bring it back there to Jerusalem. That's one of the reasons why it's in the second year, because they placed their order and it, you know, it takes a while to cut the trees down and to, to cut them in the um, boards and to cut the stones and to get all of that stuff together. And so now they're finally able to do that. But who is the one who is building? Next slide. Well, the, 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 the one who's building, yeah, the people are there. They're laying the stones there. They're putting up the logs. But it's God who's doing the building. This is God's house. This is God's temple for his people. And, and God is the one who is providing. He's the one who brought them back. He's the one who's given them the design. <clears throat> He's the one who has, has done all of this. You know, that's, that's one of the, there, there's not a, um, in, in, in the, as they're building the temple there, it's not like they have a, uh, you know, a Doug Wells fountain out there or, or a Tim Andrews altar there or something like that, right? They don't, they don't, they don't have that to name it because those are the people that gave the money or did the work for that. It's, they're recognizing that God is the one who did this, right? And that's an important and, 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 uh, a great thing for us to remember because one of the things that tends to happen to us is we look around. 
particularly those of us who have been here a while, and we think, we did this. That's not okay. I was talking with someone uh, this morning about uh, uh, this building, and the fact is, you know, in December, we will have been worshiping in this space, this space right here, 20 years. I, 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 that was a shocker to me. I, uh, I bought a watch about where Joe Bricker is sitting one time. <laughs> back, back when this was, was a store. Uh, you know, a lot of churches, uh, have these things called charter members, you know, and they get a lot of privileges. We don't do that here, uh, because, uh, lest we forget uh, whose faithfulness, whose generosity, whose work it is ultimately that built this building. It's not us. It's not me. It's not you, right? And so these people actually are, it's a great thing for them as they've gathered back there in Jerusalem, as they've come away from exile to, to sink their hearts and their minds into the reality that God has been good to them, that God has been faithful to them. And here they are trying to reenact and rebuild uh, the temple. And the temple was an important thing for them. We think of buildings sometimes as just as mere tools, but for these people, the temple matters. It's where, it's where they, they symbolize for them the very presence of God. It symbolized for them the very work of God uh, in, in their midst, right? And so we would need to ask the question, you know, what temple is God building today? Well, God's, God's building primarily two temples today. One is the corporate temple of the people of God, the kingdom of God across the world. He's at work doing that. He uses our gifts. He uses our abilities to do that. And he's also building us individually as little temples to him as well, right? So, so God's activity of building, our God's a builder. He hasn't, he hasn't stopped building. He's still doing that. And so it's a good thing to remember and a good thing to, to, to kind of, uh, <clears throat> be encouraged by the fact that God built, God is building and he will build, right? But there's something that we need to spend some time on this morning that I think is hard for us. Really hard. Uh, we're uh, c- uh, uh, conditioned not to look at the hard things. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of this worship service where there are cymbals and trumpets and loud, loud singing, you know, it's like, it's like the sound of 80,000 people in a football stadium all screaming at the same time, uh, that Ezra, the writer here, wants us to know that there are tears, that there are people who are crying. Now, uh, let me just say at the very outset of this that there must be room in our worship service for symbols and for tears. And both can be simultaneously present in the people of God as we worship. But why do people cry in church? Um, you know, uh, for most of the life of this congregation, my dear wife has sat in the front row, and you all look at her whenever I say something about her or uh, 
Or, or sometimes you look at her and think, oh, I can't believe he said that. What's she going to do? She cries a lot in church. She does. And sometimes people will say, why is she crying? Well, I'll tell you why she cries in church. Sometimes she cries in church because we had a knockdown, drag out fight before the service. Now, I know that none of y'all have ever done that. <laughs> and that's, that's never happened. And so you have to repent and come to grips with your sin, you know, as you're, you know, she's thinking he's up there preaching, what a jerk, or, you know, or I'm a jerk, or whatever. So you, you know, those of you who, uh, live on the same planet with me, you, you understand what that's like. So you have to repent. Sometimes she cries because she's broken by the sin that she sees in herself. Sometimes she's broken by the sin that she sees in folks that she loves here. Sometimes she cries because she's stunned at the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of God to her. And sometimes she cries because she's grieving. And she misses people she loves. Even in the midst of singing, all will be well. We don't sing all is well right now. Do we? Are things well right now? Yeah. Are they completely well? No. Now, it's hard for us to admit. Isn't it? That's, that's, that's hard for us to, 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 to get, to get a handle on. Now, in the preparation that I did this week about these older people who are there, um, uh, watching this service and are breaking out into tears, we're not told by Ezra why they're crying. I'm sure part of the reason why they're crying is they are seeing the faithfulness of God after so many years that he is fulfilling the prophecies that were told that the people would return and that the temple would be rebuilt. But I also think, you know, there's an illusion here in the midst of this text where it says, and they saw that, they remembered the old temple, and they see what's being built now, much smaller much smaller, and they're grieved. They're grieved. Why would they be grieved? Well, not only are they grieved by the the shrunken temple that is being rebuilt there, and it's a good thing that they're rebuilding the temple. It's a great thing. But remember, Moses brought some 600,000 slaves out of Egypt to the promised land. And how many came from Persia? 42,000. Things are diminished. I think part of the reason why they're crying is they're remembering and repenting that the reason why things are diminished is not because God forgot them, It's not because God turned his back on them. It's not because God isn't faithful, but because it's the consequence of their sin.
Does that mean that God's not still with his people? Does that mean that good things can't happen? Does that not mean that there's blessing, that there's hope? Does that not mean that, that we, we long and look forward to the fact where this, this is one more step and the bringing of the Messiah into the world and the full redemption that God is going to bring? Yeah, the, it, it's certainly true. But I'm here to tell you today that these old folks who are here, who are in this text, who are crying, um, And, you know, in our culture, we don't value old people very much, especially old people who cry, right, Uh, have something to teach us this morning. And it's this, you know, we, we too easily seek our comfort and make our peace with sin. And when they remember the glory that was the temple and the glory that was God's city, Jerusalem, and they see the ruin that it is now. They weep because, yes, God is faithful and he is rebuilding. But they also weep because sin kills. It diminishes. It seems attractive. It seems life-giving. But in the end, uh, it's destructive. And that's all it is, is destructive. Now, here's here's the thing that we that we uh, 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 recognize with this. And I know this is not something people like to talk about. It's not something people like to hear about, because what we would like for the gospel to be is that Jesus comes, lives my life, dies my death so I can do whatever I want to. And I will never face any negative consequences for what I've done. Praise God, the ultimate consequence of your sin, you can rest easy. You know, the fact is, uh, all of us in Christ today, we can rest ourselves in the work that Jesus has done for us. And we can, we, we know that the ultimate consequence of our sin has been dealt with. But the fact is, the truth is, there are consequences to the things that we do that, that happen in this life. I remember uh, several years ago sitting in my office with a man who had repeatedly committed adultery. And his wife had clear grounds to leave him and divorce him. She didn't have to. But he had continued to do this and he continued in it. And he said to me, will you speak words of grace to me? And I said, I will speak words to grace to you. Jesus came and lived and died for this sin. Yes. Uh, But I'm not going to tell you that there's not a consequence to what you've done. Sin is bitter. Uh, And it is, uh, it's, it's a mercy from our father that our sin carries with it sometimes the weight of regret and the weight of experiencing and tasting its foulness and its bitterness. Um, One of the great things about this building, one of the things that is true of it uh, to this day, um, when I run into people who uh, live uh, here in Richmond who used to work in this building, and I tell them I'm the pastor at Weston Presbyterian Church. I used to work in the Best Products building. And we have a great banner back and forth. Every one of them asks me the same question. Does the roof still leak? 
And if you want to answer to that question, walk over to my office after the worship service. It rained Saturday morning. You know why the roof leaked? Because it rained. Um, that's my answer. Yeah, my carpet's soaked. And it, and so is Marcella's and Evelyn's. Their carpet's soaked. And uh, it's been sitting there closed up since Saturday morning. And so when I went in there this morning, I get in here early on, on Sunday mornings. I walk in there and I do it. You know, I can, oh, as soon as I open the door, I can tell that, the you know, that we've had a leak. And... Um, so I, you know, finished up a little work and I prayed in there uh, and came out. And you know what? I can still smell it. I haven't been in back in there in three hours, but I still smell it. it makes me nervous, you know, because I think, geez, do people smell that on me? Do they think Steve's a stale old man <laughs> that he smells like that? Did it keep? me from being able to proclaim to you today that the love of God conquers all? Did it keep me today from being able to stand before you and and worship with you? No, it didn't. But do I still have the smell in my nose? Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, for all of us here today, it is a good thing that we come to grips with the fact that there could be, you know, in this life, very serious consequences to my sin. Because sin always kills, sin always diminishes. Now, in my business, um, the, the church business, the pastor business, one of the conundrums that we run into often is, what do you do with a pastor who falls? Okay, I know you're getting nervous now. and uh, but, but what do you do with a pastor who falls? And typically, the way people respond to that is they'll say something like, well, you know, David committed adultery and murder, and he got to stay king. Yes, he did. Let's look at what Nathan says to David when he comes and confronts him. Remember, Nathan told him the little parable about uh, the fact that the rich man comes and steals the poor man's one little ewe lamb and sacrifices it, and David's enraged, and he's like, bring me that rich man, I'm going to kill him, put him to death. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. God always comes to us first and foremost in his rebuke of us and in his word to us by reminding us of his goodness, by reminding us of his grace, by reminding us of of the mercy that he has given to us. So I, I, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. One of the things that we forget about this is, is David a man after God's own heart? Absolutely. Is, is, will the king of kings come through David's line? Absolutely. But in David's lifetime, what's going to happen? Well, there'll be a sexual assault between one of his sons and one of his daughters. And one of his other sons will take matters into his own hands and kill that brother who assaulted that sister. And that son, whom David loves, will rise up in rebellion against David such that for a period of time he actually runs David out of Jerusalem and is threatening to kill him such that David's army, his generals, must run this boy down, this son down, and will have to kill him to protect David's life. There's all kinds of consequences that come from that. Just imagine... I mean, just imagine if you're David and you still have little children and you're teaching them what it means to love God. Well, one of the consequences that David has to deal with is they know, they will hear, this is what your dad did. And I'm certain that some of it, it, and, and as a result of that, I don't know if David was overly indulgent with his children. I don't know. There's all sorts of things there that are at work in there. But the fact of the matter is, David's in heaven singing his psalms. Uh, he belongs to God. God got the last word in that, certainly. But were there earthly consequences during his life? Yes. And here's the thing that is so terrible about sin is it would be, it would be one thing if your sin only affected you. But as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, lots and lots of people will die. This is hard, isn't it? This is, this is a very profound thing. So our hope today, our, the reality is that in, in the world in which we live today is, is that as I take another step, as I take another breath, as I live before the Lord, I must recognize the fact that, that my sin, my rebellion, my coldness, my hardness towards God will have, can have consequences. Now, it doesn't always have all the consequences that it could because God's good and merciful and delivering. But sin always diminishes. Sin always kills. Jesus always builds. Jesus always gives life. And so the thing I want you to remember today is this. Regret over your sin is not enough. What does it mean to repent? It means to see and to understand my brokenness, my coldness, my rebellion, the insidious, profound nature of that. And, and that, that I, I can involve myself in sin so much that I can deceive myself that as I'm sinning, I'm not. And that there will be no consequences to it. And so the, the warning that we have here in this text today is to always be repenting, always be turning towards Jesus, always looking and trusting in the work that he has done for us. Because if it's left up to me and it's left up to you, 
sin is likely to get the last word in our lives. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, because he is a builder and a life giver, he will not let that happen. Hear these words of institution this morning from Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Uh, Let's use this prayer of confession that's printed in the bulletin to confess our sins together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, by your steadfast love and atoning sacrifice, You took our place and proved yourself to be the friend of sinners. You were punished that we might be pardoned and broken that we would be made whole. In your resurrection, you demonstrated your power over death and secured our future, triumphant, redeemed, and blessed eternally. While we await your return, we confess that we have been faithless and anxious in heart. In our restlessness, we have sought peace for our souls in a salvation of our own making. Apart from you, we find ourselves dangerously proud, alone and worn. Forgive us, Savior. Renew our faith and restore to us the true rest you alone offer us. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now, ministering in his name. And he gave it to his disciples. As we come to the table of the Lord today, we get the opportunity to examine ourselves, to ask the spirit of God to look into our hearts and our minds and and see if there is anything uh, about us, any sin, any rebellious way that we love more than Jesus.
But it also comes to us as a reminder today of the fact that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This death atones for all our sins. Our hope today is rooted in the death of Jesus Christ. And so he gives us tangible things to hold and to see and to taste, to know that the work that Jesus has done for us is the final word. That's our hope. Because left to our own devices, we'll wonder, we'll be diminished, and death will be the final word for us. Jesus is building his temple. He's building his people. Praise, praise him for that, right? That's such good news for us today. If that's your hope, uh, and you may be struggling today with the temporal consequences of some sin in your life, that struggle is a good thing. That repentance is a good thing. That looking back and, and hating that thing that you loved more than Jesus and having a small taste of the bitterness of death that it brought into your life is a good thing. Turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Embrace his work for you. See his love for you. And see that life is found there. If that's your hope, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere. He wants you to be renewed and, and, and reinvigorated again in the grace and the love and the mercy and the power that is found in his life, death, and resurrection. If that's your hope, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere. He welcomes you. He desires for you to come and to taste and see his goodness. Uh, as the elders and deacons come down front this morning to uh, assist me, let me remind you the outer ring is wine. Uh, the inner rings are grape juice. All the bread is bread that is gluten-free.